Welcome to another episode of Breakaway from the Rat Race. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with John Ensley. Uh, John is leading, a, is a leading a financial planning revolution to help you take back control of your money, your lifestyle, and your retirement plan. John believes ordinary financial planning is falling too, failing too many Americans because too many Americans are falling behind. After losing almost everything during the Great Recession, John became obsessed with finding safe, predictable ways to save and create wealth and uh, also protect, from the, protect you from the chaos and corruption of the conventional financial system. Um, so, John, welcome to the show. Eric, thanks so much for having me here. I'm uh, super excited. And what a timely... Uh, way to to meet because this week there was a bunch of uh, articles that came out one of them was about social security benefit uh that uh, they were talking about that they, they're thinking that in 10 years they've been talking about it for 50 years but now they're saying that in 10 years the social security benefit is going to be pretty much depleted or insolvent and then they expect congress to spend more money to fluff that up uh, and uh, I know that they're not. <laughs> it's going to be a tough fight for uh, to put more money into the social benefit. So then they talk about millennials potentially having a reduction in social benefit when they get to retirement age. Um, so I mean that's that was a big big story. Uh, I don't know if anybody paid attention to that, but I'm focused a lot on on the retirement side of it and financial freedom, as you know. And to mm-hmm. me, that was something that uh, really hit home. On top of that, we hear about uh, China finally Evergrande, fi- I shouldn't say finally, but fi- Evergrande, a Chinese uh, real estate developer, filed for Chapter 15, uh, bankruptcy in the U.S. Uh, there's also another one called uh, Charity Garden or something like that. I forget what it's called exactly. Another big developer, actually bigger than Evergrande, that is probably following in those the same footsteps. Mm-hmm. Why are we talking about China is because a lot of the pension funds, a lot of your pension money and contribution is invested in these companies. And if they default on their payment, well, guess what happens to your retirement? So John, so let's let's talk about this. Let's get started talking about this, this conversation because you're talking about the chaos and corruption of the, I don't know if I would go as far as corruption, but you tell me, uh, chaos and corruption of the conventional financial system. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's uh, chaos is a great way to describe it. I would say, yeah, for sure recently, but even over the last, what, two years or so in particular, there's just one story after another with bank failures and, you know, all of these things that have gone on. Um, and so it's definitely chaotic. But even when when I kind of went on what I call my journey of self-discovery after the the 2008 crash uh, in that time period, I recognized how chaotic it it really was. And I I think when I use the term corruption, like you mentioned, I don't don't, when I use that term, I think more in terms of misconceptions, Mm -hmm. things that that people are led to believe are true uh, about the financial system or about some of those tools. And and they're not necessarily true. And that was kind of the big uh, takeaway from from that journey I went on personally way back when with hundreds of books and you know all the studying was just waking up and realizing that, okay, so some of the things I thought were true actually aren't. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that it does. It certainly feels a little bit like corruption when you're looking at what happened in 2008 with the mm -hmm. uh, with the loans that was that were going on. Um, you look at some of the banks failing and having made some very poor appears to be very poor decisions in terms of how they uh, they invested their their bonds, their bonds portfolio uh, to protect the asset. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank is is one of them, but. This week, we heard of uh, Schwab also having in the, almost the exact same situation where everybody is predicting that the interest rate is going to, the Fed is going to raise the the interest rate, and then they go and lock in these bonds for 10 years. I mean, that doesn't mm -hmm. make, doesn't seem like that a lot of sense. sense. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. A little um, so corrupted. Uh, yeah, there and that and that's what I mean by corruption. I'm certainly not um, suggesting conspiracy theories or, or yeah. anything yeah. like that, right? Just kind of the the general attributes of that system lend themselves to some misconceptions. And it's I think it's hard for for the um, you know we'll call it the normal person out there to to correlate what does all this mean to me and my life and my finances, right? How does a how does a financial problem in China circle back to me somehow. Um, and, and in fact, it can, right? Because it's also interconnected. Now your, your little local bank may be connected to a bank who's connected to an investment company who's connected to, you know, that's now connected to this Chinese bank and it all trickles down and, and can have an effect on you personally. Um, and then, so for me personally, that's kind of what I was looking for way back then was, was how can I build some barriers? How can I create some systems um, to protect myself against these things that seem largely out of control. Yeah. And, um, you know, as you know, my, my financial planning practice is very insurance centric. Um, I'm a bank on yourself professional is, is what it's called. So I work with, um, with cash value life insurance and fixed index annuities and things like that as part of the tools, um, because those are the things that I can create some barriers with. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and there are a number of tools. I mean, I'm, uh, I know that cash, Cash value, life insurance is a good one. Uh, you know, I also do do real estate. Uh, I think mm -hmm. it's also an excellent one. There are other tools as well that uh, that you can use, but it's really above the tools, like everything else, right? It's not just the tool. It's to basically have the systems and the discipline to to be able to to organize your finances, like. People don't seem to uh, be able to organize their finances in a normal way to protect themselves, create wealth, and be ready for retirement. So, what are some? I think you do have some like some systems uh, that uh, that you're using for that. I mean, maybe you can uh, tell us more about it. Absolutely. So there's there's a few things I like to cover um, with with anyone as soon as I meet them, if, if they're interested in working with me. And um, the first thing I like to talk about is uh, what I call the, the marketing messages. And we have to be careful that we're not making our financial decisions based on just on marketing messages. We're making them based on actual analysis and numbers and how it, how it relates to our own life and our own objectives. Um, because there's a lot of marketing messages out there. Um, this is bad or that is bad. And I like that we're using the word tools because all of these things, whether it's, whether it's uh, an approach to real estate investing, a, a life insurance policy, a 401k, a brokerage account, these are all tools. And when we use the right tools for the right purpose, we can create some good experiences 
financially for ourselves. Um, but there's so many marketing messages out there that say this tool is bad, that tool is good, this tool is bad, um, all of these things. And we have to recognize them for what they're for, they're marketing messages. Um, I often share the story about uh, Thomas Edison. You know, he's a famous inventor, invented the light bulb. He's kind of an American hero. And um, so I always pose the question, why was Thomas Edison in 1903 electrocuting an adult elephant on camera? Well, he was in a head-to-head -head battle with a guy named Nikola Tesla over which system, direct power or alternating power, was going to go into the Niagara power plant. So it was a marketing message trying to prove that AC power uh, was too dangerous to use so that he could get his system, DC power, into the power plant. Tesla won that argument, and ultimately the whole world runs on AC power. But we're surrounded by marketing messages all the time, and we really just have to cut through the noise and, and think critically for ourselves, do the analysis, look at the numbers, and decide what makes actual sense. You know, what? So that, I like to start there. Yeah, so let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about your what are some of these uh, marketing messages and misconceptions? Absolutely. So, so one of the first ones that um, that I think is super important to understand is what I call the average rate of return con. And um, it, you can do a Google Google search anywhere and find out that the S and P five hundred, if we'll use that as the example, um, has a average rate of return of about nine percent over the last thirty years. Okay, mm -hmm. that statistic is quoted all all over the place. So Eric, let me ask you, if we put what what that what do you think that means to most people when they hear about it? If you think you put one dollar in the SP 500 30 years ago, what do you think most people assume nine percent means? I think that means that on average, do you think they made like nine percent return every year for the last 30 years? Exactly. Most of us believe that if I put a dollar in 30 years ago, it should be worth about $13 and some odd cents today. If yeah. it grew nine nine percent compounded annually, so um, here's the here's the problem though. I well, let's use this example. Let's say that uh, you were the advisor and you convinced me that you could grow my money, and I give you ten thousand dollars. And this year you invest it and you double my money. You mm -hmm. go from ten to twenty thousand, a one hundred percent return. Okay, yeah. so I'm happy. You're happy. Everybody's happy. Next year, you know, we don't do so good, unfortunately and you lose half my money, a negative 50% return, okay? Mm -hmm. So I started with 10,000, you grew it up to 20, and now I'm back to 10, okay? If I do the average, the math on that over two years, I had a plus 100, a minus 50, leaves us 50 divided mm -hmm. by the two years, that's a 25% average rate of return, okay? Mm -hmm. But am I very happy about my 25% average rate of return? No. Probably not, right? Because I didn't make any money. And actually, if we think about fees and taxes, I'm probably worse off than I've been when I started. Um, and so this is what happens it, when we think about this 9% average rate of return. We have this idea in our head that, that that's what it, you know, we're going to, we're going to compound for the next 30 years and we're going to turn that dollar into 13. But the reality of that is very different. So what's happening there, the reason it doesn't work is that it all it is when you hear those statistics, it's not, it's not necessarily that the money grew by 9%. It's the average of the ups and downs of the index is all it is. It has no correlation to actual money in that index. And the reason for that is the sequence or the order of those ups and downs make a huge difference. Um, and that's why it, it just, there's no connection there. So that's one of the first misconceptions I like to talk about is we have to be very realistic 
about what is possible with the whatever tool we're using. Uh, if we go into it expecting a 9% year over year compounded return, we're probably going to be disappointed because it really doesn't work that way. What, so what metric, so on this case, so I, I agree with you totally. I mean, it's, it's kind of like one of those, uh, you know, math things that makes it look good uh, on paper. And then people, it seems so logical. Uh, but then when you look at it, then it doesn't doesn't really add up. And then you're you're spinning your wheel as to why. But why? So what is the metric then for the last 30 years? What is the average rate of return uh, on the, the stock market, the S&P 500? So there's a lot of ways to look at that. There's um, an independent third party research company called Dalbar. And every year they produce a qualitative analysis of investment behavior, investor behavior. They've been doing that since 1984, I want to say. Um, and so most recently, that report says that the average equity mutual fund investor is getting about just over 4% um, over the last 30 years. And that report also says that the average asset allocation type investor is has been flat, and income um, income investors are are down. They're 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 down uh, one point something percent. Yeah. Um, so so you could use those metrics to say, but but what we have to remember is it's a very individual thing. Um, if everyone just bought indexes then we could put some metrics together and, and decide what, what worked and what didn't. But it depends on what you bought and when you bought it and when you sold it. And those kinds of things all play into those results. So we just have to be careful when we're comparing tools that we don't look at something with uh, maybe a 5 or 6% long-term growth rate and discount that because we think we can get 9% or 10% or whatever that number is. Uh, with this other tool over here. So we need yeah. to make sure those numbers make sense. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, one of those things too is, um, I don't want to go too deep into this, but yeah, a lot of people are using this 9% return. But if you have that 9% in the 401k, that's great. It's tax-free. But when you're withdrawing it, then you're going to have to pay fees to to get it out. That's, that's one aspect of it. Uh, mm -hmm. And then uh, the other thing, too, is that the timing is also very important and when you're taking the money out. Um, so that's that's something else to think about. I mean, if you you start taking the money out on a down year, then it doesn't matter how much money you made. It's just like, you know, you're going to have to potentially eat in your capital if you're using that, you know, that four percent asset uh, withdrawal method. Yeah, it goes back to that sequence conversation, right? Once you start drawing income out of a portfolio, those sequences of returns can can have a huge impact both directions, depending on the timing of it. Uh, a big crash early in retirement can can have a devastating effect later when the money runs out. Um, whereas a, a big spike early in retirement can actually, you know, cushion things uh, later on. Mm -hmm. So the sequence of those returns is super important. Yeah. Um, and that kind of brings me to the, the next one that I like to cover. And that's the, the pre-tax. <laughs> okay, perfect. I was good. About to prompt you for that one. Very good. Yeah. Good. Um, and so kind of along the lines we were just talking about, the pre-tax contribution con, the idea that we can we can contribute to what are, what are called qualified retirement plans, 401ks, IRAs, uh, things like that, um, on a pre-tax basis, and that somehow that creates an advantage because we're not paying tax now, we're letting the money grow tax-free, et cetera. Um, but the problem with that is, is a whole thing operates on the assumption that you're going to retire with a lower income or be in a lower tax bracket than when you were working. 
Um, the Society of Actuaries will will tell you very clearly on a couple of their their publications that uh, there is absolutely no difference if the tax rates are equal on both ends. It's the same percentage of income that you're paying in taxes and that you're keeping. So there's really no advantage there unless you're having a lower income. In my experience as a financial advisor, I work with a lot of people that are just at retirement or just into retirement. It's just simply not the case that they have lower incomes. Yeah. Um, sometimes it is, but quite often it is not because they have other income sources, rental real estate, for instance, or pensions, or they have these other forms of income. And the part that that doesn't get talked about as much as it should is taxes on the social security payments. Um, you know, we just had the the conversation here about about the uh, how underfunded that is. So we will will I'll stay away from the whole discussion of whether social security is even going to be there for certain generations. Um, but even if it isn't, the way it's taxed, the other income you have will determine up to eighty five percent of your social security payments will be taxed, and they use half of those social security payments to make that determination. Um, so they kind of change the rules once you retire and start drawing those social security payments, which means it pushes a lot of people into as high or higher a tax bracket than when they were working. Yeah. The other thing too is that when you put your money into these retirement accounts, you're restricted on what you can uh, you can invest in. So if you're in a, on a regular like Schwab or uh, mm -hmm kind of like these kinds of account, the regular custodian, you can only invest in the stock market and these kinds of uh, things, uh, but you can't invest, it's harder to invest if you want to invest in real estate, then you have to move mm -hmm. to another 401k custodian or retirement custodian in order to do that. And then you have a whole bunch of restrictions and stuff like that. So, so that typically, if you just stay with the, uh, with a regular custodian, I mean, and you pay the fees and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. your return is going to be, is may not be as high uh, as you could outside of that 401k. Absolutely. I am, I, I, I'm a big proponent of building up a pool of contingency cash, which is what I like about cash value life insurance. Yeah. And then using that cash to facilitate alternative investments. Real estate is super common to use mm -hmm. policy cash values to buy real estate, but it really would work yeah. with any investment. You could start a business, you could invest in a business, you could buy, if options is your thing, you could do options, you whatever. It's a platform to facilitate those alternative investments, which I think if you really do realistic analysis are, are so superior to the qualified retirement plans um, that, that it just makes sense to kind of, not that you have to eliminate it, but minimize where you go with that tool, because it's also opening you up to a, a tax problem later in life, potentially, yeah. and, and use some of these other tools to focus on alternative investments where you have a lot more control. If I could describe, um, what, what the way I describe this whole bank on yourself concept, it's really a philosophy, a financial philosophy that focuses on safety, control, and passive income. That's really what we're trying to do. Yeah. No. Yeah. I I agree. I have I have that, and the nice nice thing about it is that the um, yeah. I mean, it's just uh, it's available, and you have a death benefit on top of that. So mm -hmm. I like that component of it. Um, but yeah, there's that. I mean, I have a couple of other things too that I I do also that have similar kind of self banking um, uh, kind of like components as well. That I'm using that are I'm not going to talk about it because it's pretty obscure, but um, yeah, so that's um, that's exactly the right uh, a good way to do it. Uh, again, good tool. So what's that? What's the third yes. uh, misconception that you uh, 
So yeah. the, the third misconception is uh, the asset management fees con. And yeah. this is one so few people understand until you actually run some numbers with them. Um, so it, essentially, you most people have a, a 1% or a 1.5% or 2% or sometimes three quarters of a percent, whatever, whatever the number is. If your money is in a brokerage account or uh, a 401k or an IRA or any of those types of accounts, somebody is managing that. And they're probably charging you a fee to do so. And then I'm not talking about the internal costs of the actual um, trades that are happening within your account. I'm just talking about that management fee that, that's going to the asset manager um, or the advisor, if you will. And so the uh, couple of things. One is the Department of Labor did a study not too long ago, and they did some calculations based on a $100,000 account over 35 years. And a difference of 1% in fees could affect the value of the account by 28% over that 30, 35 years. That's a big, that's a big chunk. Um, so there's an example I like to use and kind of work through uh, with folks that I work with. And that is, let's say you had $500,000 in, in a brokerage or an IRA or whatever it is, and you're paying a 1% fee and that account's going to grow at an average of 3% a year. I know I don't like average rates of return, but we're going to use it for the example. <laughs> so it's going to grow at 3% a year, 1% fee. Over 25 years, that comes out to $182,000 in fees. And this kind of ties back to, which is an enormous amount of fee to, to pay someone, particularly if your advisor is, uh, you know, putting you into... Uh, index funds or mutual funds and really just leaving it there. Um, so the way this ties back to marketing messages is quite often the marketing messages are that some of these alternative tools um, like life insurance annuities, uh, different things are very high cost, right? So that 182,000 represents a 35% of the original $500,000 amount or 35% of the growth approximately. Um, and, and close to 20% of the overall account value at the end of 25 years. I have never seen an insurance product <laughs> with, with, with fees that high. Um, you know, they're structured very differently. So I think it's, it's one of the misconceptions that's super important to understand because that is not a small amount of money that we're talking about. Um, coming out of your portfolio. It's, you know, that 1% is sort of like uh, compound interest in reverse. Yeah, I mean, it sounds, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it sounds so, so cheap, but- uh, Exactly. That, it does add up, yeah, absolutely. So these things that we're talking about are something I refer to as money monsters. They're the things that are si kind of silently eating away at that value we're trying to build over our lifetime. And so we've, you know, we've, we've touched on a few of them already here, uh, yeah. taxes, fees, crashes, inflation, and, and debt interest. Mm. So what are, so, I mean, some of the people are going to say they're going to agree with you and say, yeah, totally on board with that. I think that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but Okay, so what do I what do I do with that information? I don't I don't take my four hundred one k. I invest in something else. What do I invest in? Um, yeah. you know all that kind of stuff. What's what's the uh, what's the plan here? So, for instance, one of the things um, if I'm if I'm working with someone who has some four hundred one k balances or IRA balances um, that they can get access to, so maybe it's a previous employer's four hundred one k that became an IRA that they still have, et cetera. Um, one of the things we talk about is it, it you can take a portion of that and move that into something like, let's say, a fixed index annuity. 
a fixed index annuity, it's still considered a qualified plan. So you can make that transfer without taxes or penalties or any of those things that people are afraid of if they move that money anywhere. Um, it's a custodian to custodian transfer so that you avoid any of the tax complications and just move straight over, still considered an IRA or whatever it is. Um, but now we've eliminated some of the money monster effect on that money. We've taken the market crash scenario out. We've taken uh, the average rate of return con out of the scenario. We've eliminated some of it because if, if we design them right and we use the right contracts, um, they're going to come with a guaranteed lifetime income feature, um, a guaranteed lifetime increasing income feature where um, at a certain point in time, at retirement of time, because these are retirement accounts, that's what they're for, we can then turn on a stream of income, um, a stream of income that will beat the 4% rule that most people are familiar with um, in terms of a stream of income that is guaranteed for as long as they live. And if we set it up the right way, as long as their spouse lives, no matter how long they live. So we can eliminate that longevity risk. Um, there's, so there's some of these things we can do. And I'm, and I'm not suggesting you, you know, take everything and do that with it, but there's a portion that it would make sense to protect, to, to carve it out, put it into a tool like that, let it sit there and percolate and turn into a, a pension-like income for you when you're ready to retire and you want a pension-like income. Yeah, for me, like- So the, that would be one example. Yeah, so that yeah, that's a good example. A lot of people are considering that. Uh, these annuities, I mean, when I looked at these these annuities, especially when you have the uh, indexed waiver on, uh, you know, the payout on the annuity is is around like the, of course, it depends on the age, it depends on when you're doing right, it, a lot of factors. it depends on the interest rate the moment you're doing it. There's a lot of variables. Uh, and then you end up with a payout around four and 5% of the amount, the premium that you paid for the annuity. Um, so... I mean, it's good. It's obviously very low risk, you know, because, mm -hmm. yeah, it's very low risk. I mean, the only risk you have is if the company goes belly up, then maybe you have an exactly. issue. Uh, really, it's very low risk, but you're paying that risk by having a pretty, pretty low, uh, low payout, I think. Um, so, but again, it depends on, on every uh, the particular situation. Yeah, for so, sure. What, so, so that's, but yeah, that's a that's a good vehicle for uh, uh you know for that that purpose yeah. So there there was uh, an example of one I just ran recently where a two hundred fifty thousand dollar premium within uh, well, let's say five years um it was, the way it was structured grows up to five hundred thousand or so mm -hmm. in five to seven years and then the payout on that was right around $25,000 a year is where it starts. And every time the index gets an increase, that income is going to get an increase. And so it starts there and rises throughout the rest I of the life. I see. So yeah, that's right. So that, that's right. So yeah, there's two portions of the annuity. There's the payment payment period, the premium payment period. Yep. And then there's the payout period. So yeah, if you, uh, yeah. I would, and yeah, so that that's great. That's, that's pretty good. Um, yeah. So that's, There's, of course, that's a lot of other things. Um, I just use that as a very simple, uh, low risk, uh, it's not something anybody really needs to stress about yeah. <laughs> approach if they're looking for ways to to uh, protect themselves. Yeah. The, the thing that people were complaining about the annuities, too, was the uh, the fees. There's the, the fees were pretty high on these uh, on the annuities, the initial fees just to get it set up. And uh, that was scaring a lot of people off. Yeah, and I think what happens with the annuities is the the, the fees you pay are one time, 
yeah. uh, they're done right. So they're one time on the beginning. And, um, you know, when I run the comparison to that one, I just ran through where 500,000 is 182,000 in fees, which is equates to close to 20% of the account value. If I do that same analysis on the income account on an annuity, it works out to somewhere around 3% uh, over the same 25 years um, of the accumulation value. So it's, um, it's a, it's still much, much, much lower than, than what it appears to be. And that's kind of what I meant by the marketing messages, right? There's a lot of information out there. Well, the fees are really high, but if you actually compare real fees over a period of time, mm -hmm. uh, what you'll find is they're, they're uh, much more competitive than yeah. the conventional approach. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, so that's good. And so, uh, what, what's another, um, so what are some other suggestions that you have to, basically uh, like safe and predictable ways to uh, to create wealth and then uh, and then really figure out your retirement plan absolutely so we've alluded to the other one right high cash value low commission dividend paying whole life insurance is is something that I use a lot in my practice um, as a place to to build a pool of capital um, and then I think from that point once you have some capital built up, That's where uh, I think you and I are on the same wavelength where I think single family real estate is an excellent place for, for people to begin and start mm -hmm. accumulating assets using the, the whole life policy as a platform to leverage that yeah. uh, and make that happen so that you're getting the gains in the real estate and the gains in the policy value at the same time. So that, yeah. that would be the other one. Mm -hmm. um, as, uh, as I mentioned, my practice is very insurance centric. So th those are two, uh, two strategies that are definitely um take a center stage in what I do. Yeah. And basically you're taking a, a loan against the, uh, the, the cash value of your life insurance. And, uh, but the cash, the cash is still there in the policy. The, the value of the policy is still there. The death benefit is still there. Even if you take the loan, it's growing normally. It's just now you mm -hmm. have a loan against it. You're basically using it as collateral. And then you pay the loan as you would normally, And then you can invest. It helps you invest in real estate, but nothing changes. It still grows uh, the normal way on the on the life insurance side of things. That's so. correct, and that's because the insurance company is using the the life insurance policy as collateral. So it's a non recourse loan. Number one, the only thing that's collateralized is the policy itself. Yeah. And what they're doing is they're taking the cash value you have in the policy, and that's the limit of what they will loan you, and they're using the death benefit as the collateral. So, um, you know, insurance companies are highly regulated in what they can invest in. And one of the investments they can make is policy loans to their own policy owners. So we become part of their overall portfolio of investments with the policy loan that we take. We pay them some interest. It's, it's uh, with most companies, it's simple interest and it's only applied once a year to the policy. And uh, I won't go into the details, but that makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. um, the, the average effective rates on a policy loan, depending on how long you take to pay it off and, and how much you're paying back will range anywhere from an effective rate of 2% a year uh, to 5% a year, somewhere in there. Um, so it's it, particularly now it's a very low cost financing option. Yeah. Um, and then, as you mentioned, because you're not actually taking any money out of your policy, you're borrowing it from the insurance company with your policy acting as collateral, the values in your policy continue to grow at the same pace they would have whether you borrowed the money or not. So you have two sides of this of the same coin. On one side, it's very low cost financing, two to 5%. On the other side of the coin, you're still accumulating uh, guaranteed growth and non-guaranteed dividends 
within those policies at the very same time on the very same money. So it's a compelling uh, financing tool. Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. So I think that's, uh, if you have a good, um, yeah, if you have a good life insurance policy and then you can uh, you can borrow from it with you know, cash value, I think it's a great, uh, great way to do it. Find some money and then, um, and work with it. Um, any, uh, any other advice you have for people that are, because one of the big things that people have right now is that they don't have, uh, they haven't saved enough money, uh, to, uh, you know, they're retiring. There's 50. So I think the latest one that I've seen is that people age 55 to 65, the average, the median retirement saving is $134,000. Yes. Uh, I heard a number from Vanguard. It was even much lower than that. It was less than a hundred thousand dollars. So, so don't wait till you're 55 to 65. So what can people do if there are uh, early Gen Xers or millennials? How do they get prepared for uh, for retirement early? For sure. I think, um, you know, I, I think this comes down to really some some very fundamental um, personal finance approaches, right? Uh, you talk about a lot on your on your shows. Um, so, you know, obviously everyone has to have an income. It's uh, enormously more difficult to create an income from nothing. So usually you start with some kind of income. And um, I and then it's a matter of living below your means and not just below your means, but well below your means. Um, I know you talk about the 50-30-20 approach. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's a great approach. I don't, I, for me, I don't really care what percentages people use, but have a plan. Right, whether it's whether it's 30, 50, 20 or 50, 30, 20, or however you do it, structure it so that you are uh, budgeting your living expenses and the other expenses you may have and saving and investing, right? You have to have those three categories. The percentages might vary depending on your circumstances, but have a plan and live below your means. Uh, one of my favorite books of all time is um is um the uh the Babylon, the, the title just escaped me. Um, the richest man in Babylon, yeah, book, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because it covers these things in such a, a simple, a simple way, right? Um, manage your income, live below your means, stay out of debt, uh, those kinds of things. Um, debt is another big one. Yeah, um, that's right. Let's talk about debt because I think that people there's a lot of misconception around around debt. Debt is bad, and uh, you know, but yeah, not all debt is bad. Not all debt is bad. I agree. Um, what we have to be careful of is uh, is the the interest we're paying, and too often we get caught up in what the rate is without thinking about what the volume is um, on that debt. Obviously, credit cards is a you know the numbers on on credit cards in the United States now are mind boggling. Um, but at you know, twenty percent interest, a ten thousand dollar balance is that over. Over 10 years, it's $20,000 just in interest. It's double what you actually borrowed, just in interest. And, and I, mean, I can't tell you how many people I meet that have credit cards with balances that they really can't tell you how long they have had those balances, right? It goes years and years and years. Um, you know, even a mortgage, a $500,000 mortgage uh, at what might be now an 8% rate uh, over 30 years is close to $700,000 in interest if you let it go that long. So this it's really about time. Yeah. Um, again, that sort of compounding in reverse effect. One of the ways I like to describe debt, um, at least this kind of debt, is that it's we're, we're essentially grabbing resources from the future and pulling them into the present 
to create something that we don't have the money for now. Yeah. And that can be a profitable strategy if you're investing in something, if it's if it's a real estate deal where you're borrowing money and you're creating cash flow from that from that piece of property or that business or whatever it is, but it can be hugely destructive if it's a car or a boat or a, you know, things like that, um, where that interest is just eating away at future resources. And, and, you know, what, what happens when it gets out of control is you get to the future and all the resources have already been sucked into the past and, you know, you're bankrupt. Yeah. So, so we just have to be super careful with that. And it's, it's the volume of interest. It's at 700,000. We have to pay attention to not that it's 8%. Mm. 8% doesn't sound too bad. 700,000 is a huge amount of money. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, I think this is, um, this is exactly right. I mean, you kind of like you're borrowing from the future. So that's why you want to have something that is going to generate, is going to generate some revenue somewhere along the line. It doesn't have to generate mm -hmm. revenue like right away. I prefer, I'm a big proponent of cash flow, positive cash flow throughout. Other people are going to say, well, I'm going to have no cash flow for a couple of years and then I'm going to have a big bang after two years or five years or something like that, mm -hmm. you know, when you do value add on some larger assets. But I prefer to have the cash flow. I want to have make sure that at least it pays for itself. And then I have I have a value add component at the at the end as it appreciates over time. So that's sure. kind of that's my philosophy. And I do that for everything. I do that for, you know, um, looking at uh, buying a yacht and um, uh -huh. I'm looking at it the same way. It has to pay for itself. It drives my family crazy. But uh, if it doesn't pay for itself, then so I'm, we're going to charter it, blah, blah. If it doesn't pay for itself, mm -hmm. we're not getting a boat. And it's going to pay mm -hmm. for the loan. It's going to pay for everything. And uh, when, when, you know, we're in Fort Lauderdale, so we should be able to charter it and uh, and make some some return. I'm not asking for a huge amount of return, but, you know, but it has yep. to pay for itself. Otherwise, it's cheaper to just charter the boat when uh, when I I want one. Yeah, absolutely. I it's I I, I love that you said that. I'm an avid sailor, um, oh, yeah. a licensed captain, and a sailing instructor, and um, it's been a pa another passion of mine um, for years. And I, I I do I look at it the same way. Um, I got my captain's license and became an instructor as a way to be able to generate revenue from this thing that I love to go do. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, similar concept. It has to pay for itself. It has to has to create some kind of revenue stream to offset the cost. Yeah. Otherwise yeah. it doesn't make sense. And I, I, it's so, so healthy to look at as many aspects of your life that way as you possibly can. Yeah, exactly. You look at it and you say, okay, well, yeah, I mean, it's prevents you from, it keeps you pretty frugal. Uh, and then at the same time, you can, you can find situation where you can actually get what you want and it makes money for you on top of that. So it's just like mm -hmm. uh, when that happens, it's uh, it's pretty phenomenal. Absolutely. So I actually run through a scenario in um, with with folks on yachts uh, where where we use the bank on yourself policy as a financing yeah. tool to put a put a yacht in charter, and um, you know it works out pretty interestingly. Yeah, and um, unfortunately, my cash value on life insurance uh, is significantly lower than the value of the than yacht. The cost of the yacht. Yes, that's <laughs> a, that's that's often the situation. <laughs> so yeah, so. I would have to increase my uh, my policy dramatically for that to happen. Yeah. So well, so John, uh, any um, so what uh, what's the best way for people to reach out to you if they're interested to learn more about kind of like your systems, 
and then kind of how to, uh, you know, they found something that's uh, interesting and they want to connect, mm -hmm. what's the best way to reach out to you? So I've set up a, a landing page just for that purpose. It's called jump on with John, J O H N.com. And mm -hmm. um, you can hit that page and jump right into my calendar and schedule a free strategy session. So you can get 50, 20, 30 minutes of, of, of my time, or we can just have a conversation about, um, you know, what it was that caught your interest in our conversation today. Um, whether we're a good fit, that's really what it's about. It's, it's not really a sales pitch. It's more determining whether it's a good fit. And, and then we, you know, we can go from there. So it's jump on with and, um, and you can schedule a time when, when we can, have a chat and do that free strategy session. Great. Well, thank you, John. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Eric. It was uh, a fun conversation. Yeah. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Break Away from the Rat Race with your host, Eric Martell. If you want to share your story and experience with our listeners, please message us on Facebook at Break Away from the Rat Race. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast on iTunes.